Welcome to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. This is your forum for exploring and discussing challenges that are faced by public and nonprofit leaders. And now, Leadership Matters. Welcome to another edition of Leadership Matters, the show that aims to support the leadership development of current and future public and nonprofit leaders. Each episode is designed to inform leaders and inspire solutions. I'm Tom Wall, and I'll serve as the moderator of our discussion today. I work with the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities and for the Strategic Change Initiative. We work together to help organizations to strengthen and transform themselves to help them to assure a more successful future. With me today as our guest panelist is my good friend, Andre Howard. Andre, would you please introduce yourself? Yes, thanks, Tom. Andre Howard with the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities with our Center on Leadership. I'm glad to be here and bring you greetings from our operations center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Outstanding. Today, Andre and I are proud to have as our special guest, Ken Barrick, the founder and CEO of the Seneca Family of Agencies, a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to providing unconditional care to children and families through comprehensive mental health, education, placement, and permanency services. Ken's known for his innovative mind and for his incredible capacity to inspire others to dedicate themselves to helping children and families with special needs. Ken has won numerous national leadership awards, and he served in national leadership positions, uh, both in the state of California and with the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities. Ken's the co-author of an important book, Unconditional Care, Relationship-Based Behavioral Intervention with Vulnerable Children and Families. The Seneca Family of Agencies was the winner of the 2017 Alliance Commitments Award for their commitment to advancing equity with their unconditional care educational model. Ken, it's an honor to have you with us today. Good to have you here. Happy to be here. Very happy no to be one with arrives you. at the leadership position in the field that you now enjoy without a leadership journey that shaped them. Would you share your journey with us? I'm happy to share it such as it is. I, uh, within my organization, people joke that I'm the accidental leader uh, <laughs> because I certainly <laughs> I never intended to be in a leadership position in an agency. I, I was actually doing an internship. Uh, I thought I was going to be a therapist and work with couples and help them stay together and be happy. <laughs> But I was doing an internship at a at a small residential treatment organization and school, and the organization was struggling and ultimately decided that they were going to close, and a group of kids that we had been become very attached to were going to go to the county shelter, and uh, m- most of them foster youth, and, and a group of us were very concerned about that, and we decided to form a new nonprofit organization uh, just to keep our kids out of the shelter, frankly. Um, and uh, it, that was our beginning. And where to go from there? Well, uh, it was interesting because uh, the, the group of people that stayed, and, and I, I have to attribute a certain amount of this to just dumb, blind luck, where, where I, I have always felt a remarkable group that were extraordinarily committed. Um, I, and, uh, and we uh, just kind of coincidentally uh, all loved working with the kids that were struggling the most. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, not a surprise to folks who have worked in the field that that those kids are often incredibly compelling and have compelling stories and personalities and characters and senses of humor, uh, which I have always loved. And um, and it, it, we very quickly gained a reputation as an organization that um, that had some ability to work with kids that were really struggling mm-hmm. and. Uh, as we gained that reputation, we started getting referrals uh, from unexpected places, uh, and uh, and that then developed a, a series of commitments and policies about what it would take to be able to support those kids no matter what. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was no intentionality to this idea of unconditional care. It was just something that developed over time. 
to say, uh, frankly, we couldn't kick a kid out to save our lives. None of us could. Uh, so we finally said, gee, if we're going to do this, we should probably try to do it well. So what kind of services did you end up collecting so that you could access in order to provide unconditional care? Well, that, that's, that's a great question because um, we, we found out very quickly. Remember, we started out just with one uh, residential treatment, small, serving six kids uh, and a little school. And, um, and then we, we realized that, uh, that as well as we might have been serving those kids, that we needed transition points, and they often weren't available. So that led us to work with the state to develop uh, intensive treatment foster care, and we actually passed pilot legislation for that in 1989 to allow for more intensive levels of foster care. And then as we, as we did that work uh, and, and could bring really pretty significant support to foster care, we started asking the question, well, gosh, if we can do this in foster care and we can have support counselors and therapists and community advocates. Why, why can't we do that for these kids' families and parents? Mm-hmm. And so that Talk led to us me into... about that movement that you made to work with families, perhaps of youngsters that you weren't working with in residential treatment. How did you begin to get into that, and what did you learn from that process? Well, I, again, it's, it's all very organic and natural. I mean, you, you, when, when you do this work, uh, eventually you, you realize that the kids you're working with uh, are, are attached to a broader community and you get to know those people and it's very hard to be judgmental when you know someone. It's easy to be mm-hmm. judgmental from a distance. Uh, but much harder when you're up close and personal. And, and frankly, the, the most persuasive uh, point came a number of years later when our first kids started having kids. Oh, and sure. those kids were very much in our lives. And now, and we certainly weren't going to make judgment about their parents because we knew their journey because they were, they were kids that we were very close to, now young adults that we were very close to. And so we started supporting their whole family, and, and all of that was part of the, the evolution that led us to get very interested in wraparound and at supporting kids in schools, and, and each, each need that a different child and family brought forth led us to develop a new service, <laughs> because we were just trying to meet the needs of the people that were in front of us. Now, this has all led to your model of unconditional care. And I wonder if you'd just take a couple minutes and offer background for members of our audience who might not really know what unconditional care is all about. Sure. And, and, and I think there's, there's two levels of, of the idea of unconditional care. One is a series of values, and we can talk about that a bit more uh, later. But the, sure. the, from a clinical perspective, um, we uh, started out as a very behavioral organization guided by learning theory, and um, not one of us really believed it. Uh, we knew that learning theory was important and valuable and still do, and that, uh, that people learn behaviors that, that, are, that are then reinforced and end up, uh, in some cases, helping them to survive, and then in other cases, actually hurting them quite badly. So, so behavioral theory and learning theory was always part of our DNA, but we also understood that the, that the thing that was most important in what we did was our relationship with kids and families. And so that led us into a deep dive into attachment theory. And uh, when you learn attachment theory, you learn the inverse of attachment theory, which is trauma. Mm-hmm. So, so the new. I'm so pleased to see trauma becoming such an integral part of the field, uh, because it, it's been in our thinking for a very long time, and and we began to operationalize how you deal with trauma and how you take uh, a, an internal working model and and come up with a a confirmation of those things that are helpful for kids and families. But you, you take an antithetical position to help them see those things that, that might be destructive and that, that, that aren't helping. 
Um, so th- that's two legs of a three-legged stool, so uh, behavioral theory and attachment theory. And the, the third leg is, is culture and environment. And sure. um, I always tell our new staff that you can know everything there is to know about a family's learning and everything you need, there is to know about attachment. And if you don't know their culture and their tradition and their family and their background and their environment, you really know nothing about them. So it's That's when you right. combine those three things that you have an unconditional care clinical philosophy. Well, you, you talked about orienting new staff. Obviously, the staff that you bring in don't have much exposure even to the concept of unconditional care, but they really don't have exposure to the experience of unconditional care. How do you bring them into the culture that you've established within your organization? Yeah, that, uh, from, from our very beginnings, we've established ourselves as a training organization that, mm-hmm. that if you come here and you agree to give us uh, a, a, a few years of your life will will train you deeply in a clinical philosophy that that will I hope be valuable uh, for our staff through their careers. And we we tell every new staff person we we don't I I don't personally um, uh, expect that every one of them will adopt this as their clinical philosophy, but I sure. do expect that they will learn it and then either accept it or reject it, but learn it first. Mm-hmm. And so, so every staff person is brought through um, a, a, a pretty comprehensive training uh, process that starts with a with an introduction to the idea of unconditional care, and then mentor training and support through their first two years, and a pathway to increase their competencies along that way. Outstanding. Let's hold off on further discussion. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Does your organization lack proper leadership? We're not necessarily talking about experience, but about how to face the changing dynamic of leadership today. Sometimes the people we lead know more. Old ways don't work anymore, and the comfort zone just becomes too easy. Listen for Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. We'll show you how you can adapt and develop your leadership skills to today's workplace. Every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, 
Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. We're back. I'm Tom Wall, and with me is Andre Howard and our special guest, Ken Barrick, the founder and CEO of the Seneca Family of Agencies. In the last segment, Ken was sharing his leadership journey, the services offered by his organization, the unconditional care model, and talking about how he goes about training staff to be able to embrace uh, the unconditional care model. Ken, your unconditional care model is underpinned by a philosophy. What are the key elements of your philosophy of unconditional care that you believe all organizations who are working with vulnerable children and families should consider adopting? Well, I guess first, I believe that organizations should adopt those things that they're passionate about. And so uh, I, I love it when an organization comes to us and says, we're passionate about attachment theory and learning theory and social ecology, and we're passionate about diversity and integrating the ideas of diversity into our team. But, but when they come to me and say, we're passionate about something different, and that can be operationalized on behalf of kids, that's another element of diversity, and we want to sure. encourage that. We, we don't believe we have the answers. But that being said, for in, in unconditional care, we talked about social ecology and uh, learning theory and attachment theory as the intellectual underpinning, the clinical philosophy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, the, that's the mind of it. That's the brains of it. Uh, that's the intellectual side. The, the heart of it are the underlying values. And, and we talk a lot about compassion and courage and joy. And, and when you talk to kids about that, that, that have done well, that have survived really difficult situations, in almost every sense, uh, in almost every circumstance, they'll tell you about a person. They will identify someone who was important to them, that provided them what they needed. And, and that's kind of the, the, the idea that we will have people, one of whom might be that person for that youth, and that brings compassion and courage and joy to that mission, and then brings the intellect of understanding how to put those things to work. It, it's the integration of those values with that clinical philosophy that ends up having power. Absolutely. Why do you think that our helping systems got so fragmented? And what do you think we all should be doing now to create truly effective unconditional care within our systems of care? Well, they got fragmented because we did it to ourselves. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we, we really love specialization. And, and, and that's what we did. We created an education system that specialized in education, and we created a child welfare system that specialized in safety and protecting uh, kids from being harmed. And then we created a whole mental health system that dealt with mental illness and, and social support. And unfortunately, we did that separately under separate funding streams. And so each of those, uh, or, or of those mechanisms forgets about something important. And that's that when you get a kid and a family, it's all those things. And so the, the, our, our funding streams and the way that we distribute our funding actually dictate the fragmentation. And so you have to overcome that in order to deal with a whole child and a whole family and a whole community. Our anti-poverty systems are completely separate from our mental health and child welfare systems. And, and those things have to work together to support a family and a community. So I, I think that's why they're fragmented. That's sort of the bad news. I do think there are ways to mitigate that. One should talk about the ways to mitigate that. Well, in the most extreme, you actually blend funding. You actually uh, try to get the, these competing interests to say for a certain group, especially the highest needs, that we have to come together and make um, there be no boundaries between these systems. Um, In our current structure, that's very difficult to do. So the second way is you get people to know and like each other uh, and work together. 
uh, and and you you help them undo the barriers by seeing the application of each. So so when when a youth is really struggling uh, with what appears to be a learning disability, but it's created an emotional overlay, you have to get the teacher working with the mental health professional, and you have to get both of them to understand both sides, and you have to get the funding folks to understand that they have to fund those things together, not separately. Beautiful. Let's take that one step further. If you could magically change one or two things about the ways that we're presently serving vulnerable children and families, what would you change, Ken? Yeah, I, I, I would create fully integrated systems. I'd, I'd take away those barriers. But the single thing that I would do, the single thing that I think would be most important, if, if, you, if you call a teacher right now and you say, hey, if a kid's being abused, who would I call? They would all know to call CPS. Really, they're all mandated reporters. They would all know that. But if I said, who do you call if a kid needs help? Most of them would say, I don't know. And so if I could magically change things, there would be a person either in a school or in a place or at a phone number where any teacher, any police officer, any physician could call and say, this family is in trouble, this child is in trouble. Not, I want them removed from their family, but I want to help them. And that person Mm -hmm. then would have access to multiple funding streams and be empowered to implement a plan of support. And when I say that, everybody says, oh, my God, we could never fund that. And the fact is we are spending far more by not being able to do that and by funding um, uh, uh, law enforcement efforts where where we should have social efforts, by funding uh, special education where we could have had early intervention than we could ever spend by empowering those professionals to do their jobs. Absolutely. How about the importance of every child having that caring relationship with an adult that views them as being very special and how magical that particular relationship can be. You were alluding to it earlier. Could you talk a little bit about how every child needs that kind of special relationship where they're viewed as special? Yeah, and, and I, I, that's, uh, Tom, having done the work, you, you know better than anybody. That's easy. That's the easy part. The question is, how do you empower people to be able to be in the position where they can do that? Um, sure. You know, I, I, I've never found a kid that wasn't somebody's special love. We, we mm-hmm. used to always joke about how, you know, of course, as professionals, we're not supposed to have favorites, but, but you could see these <laughs> relationships develop that, that, where there was just a spark. But the question sure. is, how do you then provide enough support to those special people in those relationships that they can be enduring? And, and, and that's why these systems become so important for kids that become, and families that become socially isolated. You've learned a few things about bringing about systems change in more, because you've been a very, very successful change leader. What pathways have you found towards system change that work both within your own organization and within the broader, broader systems that you work with? Well, I, I, let me speak for myself, and then I'll talk about organizationally and systemically. I, I, sure. I, I personally have been uh, very active in local politics for a, a long time. In fact, um, a little over 10 years ago, I uh, ran for our county board of education and have served there. Um, I, 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 don't, I can't separate activism and being engaged in public policy from my work. It's not possible. Sure. And um, and I think to the degree that we try to do that, we ignore the realities that we work in. So mm-hmm. uh, so so personally, it's about being active. Secondly, it's about empowering an organization to do the same thing. Um, I I expect that our team, that our folks, will feel that they, their greatest responsibility is not to me or this organization; it's to the kids and the families we serve. Mm-hmm. And so they need to be able to feel like they can draw on our resources and other resources, and they do. 
um, every single person that works here is an advocate, and, and, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Excellent. How do you change systems within your own organization? <laughs> I love this question. Uh, and I love this question because um, I, I, in my, I, I do an orientation with every new staff person that comes to work here. And I say to them coming in that there are some things that haven't changed and will never change as long as, as, the, as I lead Seneca. And one of those things is that the kid that's struggling the most is the kid that's going to be the most important to us. And that mm-hmm. that's fundamental. And that there are certain values that go along with that. And that being said, if you are a change-averse person, you have picked the wrong organization to work <laughs> in. And let me help you find another place to work. <laughs> because the kids and the families will dictate what we have to do. And if we can't change to accommodate them, then we just become another part of the problem. And, and so it's an expectation uh, of everybody that works here that we're constantly trying to figure out how we do this better. Um, there, there's a joke that says um, uh, that if you ask us if, if Seneca is a good organization, um, I will always say, yes, but we're not good enough. Mm-hmm. And and I think the staff uh, very much hold those values. So how do you it, it, manage to get your staff involved in the change process, the evolutionary process within your own organization? Well, it, it's not even getting the staff involved. It, it, it's it's if if you're with kids and families every day, and you are seeing their needs, and then you run into a barrier. The barrier is either an internal barrier, which has to be overcome, or an external barrier, which has to be overcome. And those barriers don't stop presenting themselves. They're omnipresent. Mm-hmm. So if you can't innovate, you can't work around them. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about burnout in the field, and I get in a lot of trouble with my staff because I don't believe in the idea in the way that most people refer to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I find it to be a destructive concept um, because I, I think the biggest reason that people experience burnout is they feel ineffective, and right. that'll burn you out in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. But but when you're when you're being successful in this work, it's so full of joy that the only thing you have to do is pace yourself to not <laughs> work constantly. <laughs> That's great. And, and so, so, so what we try to do is, and what I try to do as an antidote to burnout is help people be successful, help people see that the work they're doing has an impact. Outstanding. Hold on. We'll come right back. We have a lot more discussion. Stay with us. We have to take a break. We'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. The pace of change in the world is increasing exponentially and shows no signs of slowing down. Leadership is evolving and requires more and more innovative leaders to keep up. Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf features interviews with global business leaders, thought leaders, and academics in a wide range of industries. Proven concepts and tools may be applied to build your organization and deliver sustainable success. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. 
Trends in global business are changing all the time. It used to only be worrying about your competitor across the street, but now that competitor may be across the world. On Global Business with Mahesh Joshi, we discuss the trends in global business, plus issues and solutions that business leaders face today. Each show is guaranteed to teach you something that you didn't know before about global business. Listen live every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovations.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. We're back. I'm Tom Wall, and with me is Andre Howard and our special guest, Ken Barrick, the founder and CEO of the Seneca Family of Agencies. In the last segment, Ken was sharing his thoughts about the key elements of the unconditional care philosophy that we should at least consider and talking about some of the pathways that exist to bringing about systems change. In this segment, Andre Howard's going to have a conversation with Ken about change leadership. Andre, it's up all yours. Thank you, Tom. Ken, really enjoying um, the conversation. Uh, so just to uh, take a, a bit of a spin from um, what you and Tom have been discussing, you know, you run such a, a great organization. And I, I can't help but think about the leaders that are being developed within the organization. And I love to get your take in terms of how you uh, invest, uh, develop, uh, co-create uh, wonderful leadership within your organization. Is there a secret sauce to that? Is there a process that you go through for that uh, as you think about the work that your organization does? Yeah. Uh, so th- there, I, I, I think the biggest element of the secret sauce is who we hire, uh, and, and everything leads from that. So almost all of our management team over the years have been internal, with the exception of times when we really wanted to bring in uh, a specialty talent that we didn't have internally or that we weren't known for, in which case we, we would bring somebody in uh, from outside. But even in those cases, the, the, what we talk, the, the conversation comes around because what we talked about in terms of values have to be consistent. Uh, and um, and looking towards the work for joy as a basis of of gaining uh, organizationally and for our clients from the work and bringing courage to the work uh, and bringing compassion to the work. So we're looking for someone who w- really wants to engage in mission and really brings a certain kindness to that that then relates both both to our kids and families, but also from management to staff and staff to management and uh, uh, staff and management to kids and families. And so there are these underlying values that should permeate everything. So when you develop leaders, if you have a common basis in value, it's easier. Uh, and then from from there, there, there are certain mechanisms. The the institution is steeped in training. Uh, the idea is that you are learning and growing throughout your career here. And um, and without getting into too much detail, there are tiers of that training, and um, all of that training would have an eye towards change, innovation, um, moving and growing within the organization. Um, and a couple of examples. We have uh, a, a middle management uh, uh, entry-level training that people can opt into called uh, Lead-In, which is just about leadership development and leaning into what's your project that ends up uh, accruing to the benefit of kids, yourself, and the organization. Yeah. We built, uh, with, in partnership with USC, an in-house master's program so that people can opt into a master's program while they're here. 
and there are many, many other mechanisms that we build in that that build people's knowledge base and help them move into leadership positions. Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Sounds powerful. Wow. Good stuff, Ken. Uh, in terms of, I mean, so as I, uh, uh, you know, pick your brain just a bit around this, even as you think about the future of our sector, let's talk about this in a couple of ways. I, I want to first examine, are, are you hopeful in terms of, 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 of leadership that would be interested in carrying forth the mantle, the mission uh, of the sector? I mean, as we think about the challenges that we face um, as a social sector, some of that is about attracting uh, future leaders who want to be part of the sector, to be driven by mission to do this good work. Are you hopeful that um, that that pipeline is out there, that uh, people are interested in what the social sector does and what we do uh, from a mission standpoint? I mean, what, what's your what's your take on, on the future of leadership? I guess. Uh, well, I, I think my my take is is very two sided. Um, on the on the one hand, uh, when we watch what's going on in the country and the things that people have activated about or not activated about politically and socially, um, and 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 we we you know we saw maybe some reactions that surprised certainly surprised me about mm-hmm. people being fairly complacent yeah. right up until the time that we separated kids from their families. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the whole country got not complacent, right. and the right. whole country mobilized, and the whole country said, this far and no further. And I think that's just fascinating, and I think it's yeah. a statement about us, and it does make me optimistic, and I know that, that, that it's going to change, and it's going to change quickly. Yeah. Um, and all of us will be engaged in that change. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, that makes me optimistic. I, I, I think on the other side of that, um, the, the issues of finance and the way that we think about how we finance the social sector, mm. um, I think uh, devalue the incredible people that work in it. And I, I think we all have to become advocates for the kind of talent that we're able to attract but not necessarily retain. Um, you know, when, when I talk, with my folks that work here, many of them view this as their two years in the Peace Corps. They don't see mm-hmm. it as a viable career. Right. Um, they would if they thought they could raise a family. Mm-hmm. So I think those issues, the, the issues of how we support services in the social sector are becoming crucially important, both for the survival uh, of our workforce and for the survival of the agencies that occupy the space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which really pushes me to think about just the future of the sector itself. I mean, recently the Alliance um, kind of co-published the report, The National Imperative, and it really looked at some of the challenges. It was the National Imperative joining forces to strengthen human services in America and really pushed us to think about some of our opportunities, but also the challenges as a sector. And some of those challenges, you know, really kind of fit into what you were discussing uh, a little bit in terms of organizations running uh, a lot in terms of operating deficits um, because of unfavorable contract terms, uh, many organizations having few or no financial reserves. Um, in addition to the challenges financially, you know, just lack of access to capital for investment in technology and other systemic barriers, which really limit our opportunities for data uh, integration. Um, so, are you are you hopeful? Are you optimistic about the future of the sector itself, given some of these challenges? I mean, let alone the the talent pool, but the the, the fiscal restraints that we're faced with day in and day out. I mean, how long can we survive with those persistent challenges? I mean, are you hopeful in terms of the future for us as a sector? I, I think there do have to, there there need to be some really fundamental changes, and and, and one is in the structure uh, of nonprofit organizations and how you create a healthy nonprofit organization. And when 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 we just look at a business that that doesn't necessarily have a mission except to make money, we assume that in order for that business to be healthy, that they have to develop a certain amount of reserves, that they have to be able to do research, that they have to be able to invest in the future. When it comes to the not-for-profit sector, we assume that none of that is important, and that's incredibly short-sighted thinking. We want our nonprofit organizations to be as robust and as important as our for-profit sector, and, and 
that those two concepts, the for-profit world and the not-for-profit world, should be feeding each other. Yeah. We should be providing the social support that allows the country to be successful, that allows there to be a, 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 a robust and strong community that can then help to serve all the other functions. And, and you can't do that without having organizations that are financially healthy, without having organizations that can generate uh, some reserve, without having organizations that are technologically so, as sophisticated as the for-profit sector. If I can add, my, my budget for technology right now is uh, uh, about uh, less than 2% of my overall budget. Um, most businesses will say that in order to have a healthy business, you should have a minimum of five, and in, this, in today's world, as much as 7% for technology and technology support. We can't do it, and that weakens us as an organization and weakens our capability and, ironically, makes us cost more in the services we provide. Right. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the harsh reality that we, we face, and we need to continue to figure out ways to to create those pathways to success. Um, another quick point, uh, Seneca does a great job in terms of understanding the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, you guys understand that it's something that is integral in terms of who you are, how you operate, what you do. Uh, making the business case has often been a challenge for um, uh, folks to understand. If you were to offer the business case, why invest in diversity, equity, and inclusion when it comes to talent, workforce, uh, integrating and thinking about programs or whatever it might be. What's your argument for saying that uh, diversity, equity, inclusion is unnecessary, that it's got to be there? I mean, how do you approach that? What do you, how do you respond, I guess? You know, it, I, I, I love that the question. Of, besides the obvious ethical imperative, and, mm-hmm. and can, can, let's, can we start with that as a baseline? It's an ethical sure. imperative. <laughs> But but besides that, go back to the earlier conversation. We we talked about an organization where I say, if you don't believe in change, you should work somewhere else. We need to change, and we need to innovate, and we need to grow, and we need to meet the needs of our community. How do I do that without bringing people in from every every experience of the kids and families that we serve from every aspect of our communities that understand at a depth that I can it, it, it's like an engineer bringing in someone who's never looked at, a, at an engineering problem because they've never been part of it firsthand and saying now I want to move you into management <laughs> they don't know the, the, the I need I, I need folks that have lived experience right. that reflect right. the full richness of the communities that we serve, and Absolutely. and so it, it it's not just a an ethical imperative it's a it's a business imperative. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. Great. Let's take a break for just a moment. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network leadership matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. need to improve leadership staff or organization performance contact InnoVisions today for quality effective and affordable leadership staff and organization development training coaching and consulting services Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. 
Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. We're back. I'm Tom Wall, and with me is Andre Howard and our special guest, Ken Barrick, the founder and CEO of Seneca Family of Services. In the last segment, Andre and Ken were talking about how Seneca develops leaders within their organization and the kinds of things that we all probably need to consider to ensure the future of our sector. In this final segment, we usually like to ask our special guests to offer some advice to the field and to share a mistake that they may have made that allowed them to learn something that they would never have learned if they hadn't made that mistake. So, Ken, could you please offer some advice to the practitioners in our field who simply want to learn how to be more effective in helping the vulnerable children and families that they're serving? Sure, but if I may, Tom, I'm going to reverse the questions and and tell you about my mistake first. Okay, because, sure. Uh, I, I, I think in doing that, it will make my advice less presumptuous. Um, so, uh, so I, I thought it was a great question, uh, and 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 I had a very clear answer um, a number of years ago. Um, one of our education partners uh, came to us with a problem and actually laid a lot of blame that was not deserved at our, at our feet for a problem that they had kind of caused and created. And uh, I got very angry and I said, uh, we are simply not going to serve them anymore. And so give them notice that, um, that we are not going to serve their kids. And my staff uh, got very angry with me and said, um, uh, our kids didn't create that problem, our partner did. And I said, well, I can't effectively serve our kids when our partner behaves that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were about, it was a small number, there were only about five or six kids involved. And, um, And in all candor, on three of those kids, my staff felt so strongly about it that they went behind my back and ignored what I said. (laughs) <laughs> Which, uh, 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 but on two of them, they actually moved the kids out of the program. And over time and through some very good advice from colleagues, I realized that I had made a terrible error. And um, I had to go back, ask them if we could bring those kids back in, and I had to apologize to the program. And And the reason it was such an egregious error. I mean, we serve thousands of kids. Uh, but but it, at, at the end of the day, you can't compromise your values for any reason. And that value that says we don't give up on kids. Now, not taking other kids from, from that partner, that would have been a reasonable thing to say. But mm-hmm. to cause pain to kids in our program because of a disagreement was not anything I should have done or would ever do again. Mm-hmm. And so the advice I would give is be really clear on what your values are. Be really clear on how important they are, not just to you, but to every person you serve and everybody in your organization. And then don't ever compromise on those core values. Outstanding. Very good. The biggest challenge that folks who are delivering services face today? What do you think that is, Ken? 
Um, I, I think that we're asked to do things, and it goes back to what Andre was talking about earlier. Where, when, when, when someone asks, if, if someone asks you to build a computer, and they say, we'll give you 70% of the parts, no one in their right mind would say yes to that. Um, but we're often asked to do something that has a clear, we know what it would take to do this task. We know what it would take to to find a home for a child. We know what it would take to to mitigate a learning disability or to provide a mental health service or to transform a school. We know. We know how to do it. And then someone will say, we'll give you half of what it will take to do that. And we'll say yes. And we can't do that. We have to say we, we understand what we're doing. We, you have to know what you're doing. And in order to do that, what you're asking me to do, these are the resources I need. And I can't compromise on that. Again, it goes back to that question of values. If our values are that we're going to serve the kids and families we're here to serve, we have to do that in a way that doesn't, that doesn't compromise their ability to succeed. So I, I think uh, for, as a sector, holding the line on that and saying, let's be real about what it takes to do what we're asking ourselves to do uh, is important. Um, I'm sure no one has ever asked the Defense Department to build a jet with one wing. Good point. Great. Last question for you, Ken. What do you believe is the greatest challenge that families are facing today that we as a sector need to prepare ourselves to be able to respond to? Um, I, I, I think in, in the broadest sense that we have communities that we haven't created any real opportunity even though we pay lip service to it. And that's, that's most uh, dramatically seen in the enormous differences that we have in education uh, for kids in poverty and particularly for kids of color in poverty uh, compared to kids of privilege. And until, and then we represent ourselves as a place that creates opportunity. Uh, until we address that in in really profound ways, and, and uh, going all the way to back, back to when Savage Inequalities was published, we we still we still haven't addressed the enormous inequity. And as long as that's a fact of life. Um, it's going to be really hard to mitigate the underlying circumstances that create the problems that we're trying to, to address. Outstanding. Thank you very much. Ken, we really appreciate the ideas you've shared with us today. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Our thanks a lot to Andre Howard and to you, Ken, our Thank special you. guest. We ask everyone to please join us again next time when we present another edition of Leadership Matters. Thank you again for tuning in. Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar is broadcast live every Wednesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a wonderful week and make your leadership matter. Matter.